So you're listening to the Interzone show. No, what? I can't even get the show name right. No, no, it always takes three know. goes um, to get the first sentence. It always takes three. Right. <laughs> no, I've, I've recorded enough bloody lectures in my time to know this. You're listening to Interzone Pod. Uh, you're listening to Interzone Pod. My name is Gareth Jelly, and today I'm talking to Nick Lowe. Hi, Nick. Thank you very much for coming on. Hi, Gareth. Thanks so much for doing this. Um, so that what we're going to do today is you're going to basically tell people about some of the films you weren't able to squeeze into your massive 30 film uh, mutant popcorn in interzone 294 right that's right yeah uh so these are three films that i desperately wanted to get out there but which had very limited theatrical releases in the UK and for three completely different sets of reasons were films that just needed an enormous number of words to explain to uh, uh, interzone readers and what to explain what was so exciting about them and mm -hmm. so they just hit the cutting room floor but one of the okay. great things about having the pod is that we can dump uh, endless amounts of words uh, into this and uh, mop up some of these really interesting films that would just not have uh, made it into print despite all the wonderful space he managed to find for uh, whatever it was five and a half thousand words of, uh, of, of driveling from me it was yeah and 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 you can order that issue i should i should plug it right here you can you can order a subscription uh, from interzone.press uh, which is where you'll find all the links you need. And there is an ebook edition uh, available from Scarlet Ferret. And the ebook edition has an extra story by Daniel Bennett called Benji the Killbot. So, yeah, check those out if you haven't already. Moving on to the first film, then. So, you're going to start with, uh, with Moon Man, I think. Yes, well, the, 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 this. <laughs> It's a classic example of a film that you would have actually to take an entire column to explain. But this was the biggest Chinese hit of 2022. Uh, it's uh, uh, one of this emerging uh, high confidence, big budget uh, uh, strand of uh, uh, Chinese cinema playing mostly to the domestic audience, uh, but uh, took, I think, over 400 million um, that's in dollars, uh, something like that. The tenth uh, highest run. grossing film of that's right, yeah. So, yeah. so absolutely massive and mm -hmm. had very limited exposure in the West. Uh, uh, in London, where I'm based, it played on one screen, which is the local Chinatown uh, uh, cinema, and it was always packed out um, because they have tiny. Uh, screens there, but uh, but it's a really important film for understanding where Chinese cinema, uh, Chinese science fiction cinema is uh, at the moment. And uh, I yeah, we're talking in a week where Wandering Earth Two has just come out internationally, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, again playing on slightly more screens in London, uh, several West End screens, and they're all absolutely rammed. Uh, wow. They uh, Chinese community in London that has been absolutely packing out these uh, these screenings, and it's a wonderful thing to watch uh, uh, 
these films uh, with an audience who is un- who is laughing at the right in the right places, which right, right. Uh, Western viewers can't. So, uh, and, and Moon Man is an incredibly interesting film. It's a distillation of lots of things which are distinctive about uh, uh, Chinese. SF as it's emerging mm-hmm. on screen, which is very different from Chinese SF as it's taken over our lives in the last decade uh, uh, in print. So this is a comedy. It's it's kind of the comedy version of The Martian, only with a live audience. Um, okay. It's based on a Korean webcomic uh, called Moon Yu, which ran from 2016 to 2019. And it's... Uh, it's one of these films. Uh, I don't know if this is a, a Chinese thing generally, but it's one of these films which seem which starts as though it's the sequel to an even more exciting film that we just kind of uh, <laughs> take as read. But it, um, it it's uh, about a, an earth-threatening uh, apocalyptic disaster. There's um, an asteroid impact uh, which is countered uh, or an impending asteroid impact which is uh, countered by uh, the United Nations Moon Shield Project whose uh, aim is to use the moon as an anti-asteroid shield um, uh, uh, mining helium-3 to create a weapon called the Cosmic Striking Hammer which will break up this asteroid and cause it to um, uh, fragment and only marginally destroy civilization. And that all happens in uh, the prologue. Uh, uh, it's, it's kind of I mean, well, one of the levels on which this film is so extraordinary. It's like a parody of The Wandering Earth. Um, uh, but um, the actual plot is about the one rather low-level moon-based bureaucrat who's stranded on the moon because uh, his uh, uh, attention is... Uh, distracted while there is this emergency evacuation because there is one of these asteroid fragments heading for the moon base. And he thinks that uh, the Earth has been destroyed by the asteroid fragments that made it through the, 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 the shield, and he thinks he's the last human alive. What he doesn't know is that actually uh, the, the project has been quite successful and that he is being monitored and his every move surveilled by the surviving uh, uh, humans who made it into underground bunkers. Um, And uh, again, there's a a lot of wandering earth motifs uh, in all of this, particularly wandering earth too, actually. And uh, so uh, they're all... um, live streaming him to a global audience and because they don't have audio they dub on uh, voiceover that tries to present him as a great civilizational hero and a great kind of role model oh, wow. very chinese amazing. kind of thing and gradually um he uh, deconstructs this image of the hero that is being engineered from him uh, from from the outside uh, uh, and reveals that he is in fact a complete goof off and uh, 
uh, <laughs> then the plot gets going. As uh, you'll have to um, just bear with me for the next bit. He discovers um, that he is cooped up in the moon base with a space kangaroo. Um, wow! I, I assume a relic of the uh, the web comic which I haven't seen. And kangaroo is a great. Uh, webcomic fodder and mm-hmm. uh, initially they are antagonists um, they become uh, best buddies and it turns out that there is another uh, uh, civilizational destroying fragment heading uh, for earth and uh, he and his kangaroo buddy uh, need to perform one last act of heroism and Again, a very Chinese, uh, and again, specifically Wandering Earth kind of thing, um, uh, act of final self-sacrifice uh, to save uh, the, uh, humanity after all. So that's the film. And that's the film. <laughs> wow. Uh, that, 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 that's a lot. And um, um, space yeah. kangaroos. That's a... Uh... Yeah. Wow, that's a uh, that's amazing. Well, actually, it's an Earth kangaroo who has uh, ended up on uh, on uh, the moon. Uh, uh, he's called King Kong Roo, um, yeah. uh, and he's a very active and violent kangaroo. Uh, he's obviously watched a little bit, uh, uh, slightly too many kangaroo boxing movies. I kind of want to see it just just for how a kangaroo behaves in moon gravity. That sounds that sounds amazing. Like yeah, I can't say that they. Um, that, that kangaroo moon gravity has been a big part of the uh, the, 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 the science fictional thinking on this. You mentioned that this is part of a new wave of of kind of Chinese science fiction, which is you know coming coming to a Western audience. And and yeah, how how does this compare to some of the other films you've seen? Well, this is uh, a film which has had uh, almost no exposure to Western audiences. It's not streamable, as far as I know, um, uh, at least in the UK. Uh, it, uh, it had a, a, a bit of coverage in uh, press reviews, but it isn't, like, like a lot of Chinese releases, it's not really impinging on the Western uh, film-going uh, uh, consciousness, it's not really on their radar. And I think it's a terrible mistake because China, mm-hmm. of course, is one of the places that is really shaping, well, it's the places that, that's shaping even how Western films are made and uh, you know, the fact right. that Avatar, uh, A Way of Water, was released in uh, China and that they're now opening up again to Marvel films, which have been suppressed for the last couple of years for slightly mysterious reasons, uh, uh, is already starting to uh, shape the business model in big uh, studio productions. But also there is this yes, growing confidence that the local market alone can actually support really ambitious, big-budget filmmaking uh, of a kind that doesn't have to compromise with Western sensibilities. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the fascinating things about Moon Man is that it's completely made out of uh, a kind of trope that... Um, is not really part of the, at least the um, kind of Hollywood individualist sort of uh, sensibility. Um, like the first uh, Wandering Earth, it's very much about uh, heroic engineering, 
about humanity banding together to uh, in strangely unproblematic ways um, to uh, and usually under Chinese leadership to uh, to achieve um, uh, global solutions involving vast uh, monumental technological uh, achievements um, uh, to protect the future of humanity uh, collectively and whereas the wandering earth films treat this uh, for the most part, seriously, despite the goofiness, particularly of the first one, there's much less of it in the um, in, in the sequel, which of course is actually a prequel. It's actually um, uh, the backstory of the first film. Uh, uh, Moon Man uh, thumbs its nose at it, and particularly this narrative of trying to create a hero out of someone who, in fact, it's gradually revealed, only signed up to the lunar. Uh, a program because he had the hots for uh, one of the mission commanders who is vastly out of his league, but of course they do develop a remote romantic collection um, when she survives and they become part of the uh, the, 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 the main film uh, uh, plot. So it's got these uh, collectivist kinds of models of heroism uh, that uh, elsewhere, of course, are seen as a kind of uh, potential future solution to global issues of uh, how we cope with um, civilizational uh, threats, right. um, uh, uh, including climate change, and how you um, can shape a response by unifying international uh, decision-making under a single authority. So the United Earth Government of the Wandering Earth films is a great uh, model for this uh, kind of uh, top-down leadership that can make these heroic engineering uh, projects uh, possible. But the glorious thing about Moon Man is that the attempt to create propaganda heroes from this kind of project is revealed as having um, feet of clay and the hero is completely inadequate to be uh, the uh, propaganda uh, uh, icon that he's being uh, promoted as until he earns it himself uh, through the uh, <laughs> kangaroo-related events of the film. Okay. Well, that that definitely sounds like one I will be looking for in all sorts of places. So yeah, thank you, thank you for that one. Um, and super. Um, moving on, moving on to the next one. So the the, the deer king, um, which I know nothing about. I haven't even seen. I haven't seen anything about this one at all. So yeah, tell me all about the deer king. Well, the deer king is one of these animes that has. Uh, often in the UK get, got a rather limited uh, theatrical release but one of the plus signs about it, uh, one, of the, one of the positive things about it is that you tend to see the same people uh, converging at these, these limited screenings. So this is something uh, about which there was huge excitement in the anime community. This is the directorial debut of uh, Masashi Ando who is uh, one of these figures who has been in uh, the industry 
for decades and has worked on, I mean, he's, he's a Ghibli uh, product uh, originally, going all the way back to, uh, I think, only yesterday. Um, worked uh, as an animator on uh, so many legendary features, not just from uh, uh, from Ghibli, uh, but uh, subsequently, I mean, he he he, he worked on uh, 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 Tokyo Godfathers, Ghost in the Shell, Patrick, oh, wow. uh, Letter to Momo, uh, uh, when Marnie was there, Miss Hokusai, Napping Princess, Your Name, Mary and the Witch's Flower, Weathering with You. It's just a roll call of uh, ab- you know, some of the greatest films ever to have come out of Japan. And finally, he gets to uh, direct a feature. Um, it's based on... Uh, so this is a kind of... Um, uh, if you could imagine post-apocalyptic high fantasy, uh, it's... Um, it's, it's okay. Uh, so you have to imagine a fantasy universe in which there has been a bio-apocalypse. Um, mm. It's based on a short novel series by Naoko Uehashi, which hasn't been translated into, uh, I think, any Western languages. So I've, I, I, I've only got the film to... Uh, to go on, but um, it resonates particularly strongly with the moment because in this fantasy kingdom uh, there uh, is um, a kind of pandemic event, something called the uh, Mitsua or Black Mold Fever that Mm. uh, has been uh, that, that, that has kind of scarred the history of uh, the world. And the film itself, which uh, seems, as far as I can gather, to follow the novels, or at least the first novel, quite uh, closely, is our first pandemic high fantasy um, uh. with your... Uh, a rather uncompromisingly novelistic um, high fantasy plot with a fellowship and a quest played out against a background of political uh, intrigue. And uh, it's one of these films that's very driven by world building um, and uh, by the concept in play rather than actual stakes and action and propulsive forward movement. But it's a really fascinating intrusion of the world of face masks and Uh. um, syringes and uh, antibodies into the world of uh, high fantasy. I think the, the reaction to it has been that it doesn't really... Uh, carry you as a narrative. Um, uh, it's so novelistic. It's so. Uh, I mean, the, the dialogue is often uh, rather uh, leaden as well. But um, it's uh, such a fascinating fusion. I mean, the the, the idea of trying to marry um, uh, high fantasy tropes to yeah. uh, the. Uh, the the, the formative experience, the formative, uh, as it were, science fictional experience of our generation um, uh, is actually really 
spellbinding uh, to watch. And I absolutely love the film, despite the fact that it doesn't, you know, you know, by the end of it, you think, I, I'm not sure I really understand uh, what really happened. Uh-huh. And the, the, the plot always kind of leaves you one step behind. One of the great things about it, one of the things I uh, heartily approve, is that it's one of these films which, lends, which leads up to what you think is going to be a big third act battle as uh, warfare breaks out between the two rival kingdoms. And okay. the whole point of the film is that that doesn't happen and that it's averted. And that seems to me a very, again, a beautifully non-Western kind of ending. Mm. Oh, that's sad. No, th- th- I mean, that definitely, yeah, that definitely catches my eye. I, I like the idea of this, this, yeah, post, was it post-apocalyptic high fantasy? That sounds, that sounds really yeah. cool. That's really cool. Um, di- digressing slightly um, to because you're, you're you're in the UK and there is this theatrical production of uh, My Neighbor Totoro. Um, I don't yes, know if it's on yes. now or if it's coming in the summer. Uh, it's, I've, I've uh, it's, uh, it's just coming to an end. We couldn't get tickets, or at least my daughter was trying to get tickets. I mean, it sold out very very rapidly. Um, uh, we, we were going to get tickets for Christmas and, uh, and and haven't been yet. But yes, I mean it's. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm not uh, to new. I'm not entirely sure what the point is of doing my neighbour Totoro on on stage because the entire point of uh, I mean everything that's brilliant about that film is to do with its use of the um, animation medium. But uh, you know it's mm-hmm. it's uh, uh, such uh, an extraordinary story that that sweeps you up right. and as as uh, someone who's watched the sequel of course which they only show in the ghibli museum um uh, uh it, it has a special place in my heart but no wait, i haven't wait, seen wait, it sorry yet, there's there's a sequel yeah there's a sequel called may and the kitten boss uh, oh, uh, which wow. is a short one of those ghibli museum shorts that okay is uh, but it's absolutely beautiful and i think mm-hmm. uh they do sell they do sell a uh, a uh, quite full kind of picture book version uh, mm. in the museum, and which I think you can probably uh, buy online. It's abs- I mean, it's, it is actually essential Miyazaki. Um, okay. Uh, <laughs> do you want to, do you want to do the little sidebar on May and the Kitten Bus? I mean, all we, day long. We, let's save that. Let's save that because right. that, that, and I will I will make an I will make a mental note because we I I do love that film and I. My my kids have all watched it a lot, but my youngest was going through a point. I think it was about six months ago where she was watching it so much. I was I was becoming dizzy with it. It was sort of like, oh. it's just an amazing film. Just so so. I don't and, think you can watch it too much. Uh, no, uh, no, I, you well. <laughs> I raised two daughters on it. You raised two daughters on it. No, I don't think you can. I think I think that it's sort of. I, I think the. I think there's something about the the beats in it that you can kind of almost yeah. come into it at any point, which is what was happening with, which is why I was laughing earlier because it was I wasn't really watching the whole film all the way through. I was kind of like you know there was the, like you know skipping forward and skipping back and watching this bit and and, and all of that, but it kind of still works. It's one of those films where oh. you can kind of just get dropped in, and okay, let's just go and just watch it again. I have that relationship to Con Air. Yeah. Oh really? <laughs> well, for some just, reason, it's you can just always on TV into... in the UK. Oh, is it? Uh, oh, that's interesting. Yeah, um, and okay. I can never turn it off when it comes on. It just, oh, okay. Uh, uh, you just kind of get swept up in wherever you are, and you think, oh my god, this bit's coming up. I've got to watch it um, as far as that—the uh, bit where um, 
uh, he says, is, uh, is that your car? Uh, uh, and yeah, you can you can drop into. Uh, and uh, are you a Nicolas Cage fan in general? Because I I am. I think he's I think he's 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 genius. And um, but I know some people. He's well, kind of like uh, much, I mean, right? he's he's uh, he's now kind of transcended all other genres of film acting. Um, and <laughs> uh, you know, a Nicolas Cage vehicle that lets him go full Nicolas Cage is absolutely. Um, uh, kind of glues your eyeballs to the screen, um, mm-hmm. uh, but some of them are truly terrible films, and you just got to kind of balance the two of those. Uh, yep. Yep. Yeah, Okay, and um, moving from there, and of course, Nick Nicholas Cage is in uh, Wild at Heart, and that kind of yeah. links us nicely to to Lynch Oz, which you're going to talk about next, I think. Yes. Well, this uh, is a rare example of. Um, a theatrically released uh, documentary, um, mm-hmm. which um, uh, talks in really central ways about um, uh, traditions of uh, fantastic filmmaking. This is the, um, I think, tenth feature now by the great film documentarist uh, Alexandra Philippe, uh, who. Uh, may not be a, uh, all that recognised a name, but he uh, he's probably best known to Indizen readers from for his film Memory: The Origins of Alien. Uh, but he also uh, did one about George Lucas's relationship to uh, the people versus George Lucas, uh, which is about his relationship to his fan base and the the, the adversarial uh, relationship. There, he's done. Uh, features about the he's done the entire feature about the shower scene in Psycho, and he's a tremendously experienced maker of films about films with a great team that he's been using uh, for years. And this is the film where he turns his attention to one of his great obsessions, which is David Lynch's own obsession with The Wizard of Oz. And the way this film's put together is like no other documentary you've ever seen. Um, it's uh, it's assembled in six chapters, each of which is led by a critic or filmmaker, some of them of uh, great interest to interzone readers. So the last two segments are by uh, Justin Benson and Aaron Moorhead, uh, to the, the, the great uh, NDSF uh, stars that uh, are, um, uh, we're all big fans of. And uh, uh, David Lowry, the, uh, um, the, the, the great uh, filmmaker uh, behind uh, Beast Dragon, uh, they, uh, the one Disney live-action remake that absolutely stomps on uh, the original A Ghost Story and, of course, um, uh, uh, The Green Knight is mm-hmm. uh, uh, astonishing um, uh, medieval fantasy. And uh, each of these contributors deals with, in, in each of these segments, deals uh, they, they talk about one particular aspect of Lynch's as the film shows, absolutely all-consuming obsession with The Wizard of Oz, but also in broader terms about the impact of The Wizard of Oz on all subsequent filmmaking, particularly in the uh, fantastic genres. So uh, you you go into the film thinking, well, you know, I've I've noticed that Wild at Heart is a bit obsessed with uh, 
uh, red red shoes, and actually uh, there are quite a lot of red shoes elsewhere in Lynch if you uh, see them all edited. Uh, uh, together uh, and there are an awful lot of curtains in David Lynch films but how are they going to make a two hour feature out of uh, red shoes and curtains and gradually over the course of the uh, six segments uh, which have been very cleverly kind of co-devised between uh, Philippe as the overall uh, director and the particular interests and sometimes the particular bodies of uh, filmmaking um, from the uh, contributors, you get a sense not just of the seemingly rather limited subject of how um, this film, which in which obviously um, Lynch himself has uh, come completely clean about his uh, lifelong fixation with, um, but also actually uh, the much wider um, traditions of fantastic filmmaking that have uh, fed the work of people like Lowry and Benson Moorhead, Karen Kusama is in there as well. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and it becomes actually a kind of um, test of the thesis, which is, is not a new one, but uh, is and it's variously attributed in the film, um, that actually all films subsequent to The Wizard of Oz are basically The Wizard of Oz. And <laughs> at the same time, it doubles as a way of um, getting Lynch to talk about Lynch without actually uh, requiring him to break his notorious silence on what his films mean. And all of this is done within a grammar of uh, filmmaking documentary and an incredible mastery of the legalities of fair use to edit yeah. together uh, clips that uh, uh, you wouldn't uh, uh, be able to uh, get uh, paid permission to use from some of the greatest films of uh, uh, the last uh, hundred years mm -hmm. um, um, uh, in a kind of almost Adam Curtis-like mastery of uh, telling stories through juxtaposition and right. obsession with the grammar of um, uh, likeness between seemingly unrelated uh, images. Yeah. And, 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 and um, just it's, that, it's a and, wonderful and, film oh. about Lynch. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, yeah. No, no. But the, the, the in terms of the, those those mon like the way they edit things together, there's one in particular where where you kind of see the attention to detail. Where they, I, I think there is, it's the scene from The Wizard of Oz where they're kind of looking over a ledge at something at these sort of yeah, yeah. And then and then there's a there are a couple of comparison shots and and the shot on the right sort of just very slowly moves down and back up just to kind of line it just to be properly lined up with the one on the left. And it was this little kind of these little details and the the amount of care that's gone into these these sort of juxtapositions is is astonishing. It's a yes. Uh, we, we should explain that it, it uses a lot of split screen. So right. you're yes. seeing uh, a shot from one film alongside uh, a shot from another. There's an amazing mm -hmm. montage in the Lowry sequence, which is the great climactic finale. Although I don't think actually it's authored by Lowry, this particular bit, um, which simply shows, I mean, it's testing out the thesis that, uh, for example, Hitchcock's Birds um, is a film he was building towards through his uh, th throughout his life. And right. it just picks up a bunch of 
Um, and it does a bunch of shots involving birds from earlier Hitchcock films Mm -hmm. where you can see some of the visual language of the birds and some of the effect of those shots being tried out the first time without, of course, any sense uh, when uh, uh, these uh, earlier films were made that this was where it was ultimately going and then there's a there's a montage which does this uh, the same kind of thing for Kiarostami and Antonioni and uh, it's showing that uh, directorial careers are sometimes they sometimes don't follow the arrow of time the way you would expect that they're actually that mm-hmm. uh, they they lead toward uh, summative moments and that's really the only way to uh, to explain them and all this is done through this language of uh, comparing shots from uh, often seemingly very unrelated films uh, either side by side or in uh, sequential uh, montage and it shows a kind of mm-hmm. mastery of how you make films about film that I don't really remember seeing uh, anywhere else right I, I can't think of anything which has done it as as well as this and 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 while also being really sort of making you want to go back to the source material there was the, there was an arthur penn film that i'd never maybe i'd seen like tiny bits from but yeah the, the um the miracle the worker. miracle worker yeah, yeah the miracle worker but and which sort of i think that's in the i think that's in in the justin benson sequence in the justin benson aaron moorhead sequence where they're talking about I, I think that's the sequence and and yeah it just kind of made me kind of really it just sort of it does sort of open this door on the material and I, I listened to the very beginning of the commentary um, where Kim Newman is talking to the director and I think the director says quite early on that sort of it's not a definitive answer it's a it's like a doorway into the material or it's like, like a way of opening up the material and I think that's that's what worked for me was just this okay wow I need to go and watch these things with a, with a different, a completely different, you know, way of seeing things, basically. Yes, and it works particularly well for Lynch because he is so notoriously reticent about uh, uh, what is even going on in some of his films, even though a lot of the time, I mean, in uh, Inland Empire or in Mulholland Drive, uh, I think it is now fairly well established that there is something very specific going on these are these are narratives which are summarizable um, in ways that lynch himself of course absolutely refuses to do and right. one of the things that this film does is to uh, introduce you to a way of understanding lynchian narrative that doesn't require you to spend uh, the next 36 hours of your life on reddit uh trying to uh, uh, collate uh, attempts to summarise Three Hours of Inland Empire, which I, I, uh, remains a completely baffling film, but mm-hmm. uh, nevertheless actually does have a kind of uh, controlling narrative uh, behind it. Uh, uh, and uh, this is a film that, uh, got, you know, quite apart from making you want to go back and watch the source material, as you were just saying, also sends you back to Lynch and sends you back yeah. to... Um, some of these astonishing moments, some of which crop up repeatedly in different uh, segments Mm -hmm. uh, that uh, give you uh, the opportunity to watch those films again uh, with a new kind of eye. And and the the, the segments, there is, the segments are not, or or the segments for me were not 
equally satisfying. I, I, I think the I agree. I think the the first one kind of worked. I think Amy Nicholson's worked as a sort of as a sort of runway into what was going on, and yeah, yeah. And, and and that kind of made sense. And then the jump is it's Rodney Archer was the second yeah. one, Rodney and Archer, yeah. John Waters was kind of really funny because it was it became about John Waters a lot. Um, yep. which was also good. But the one that really, the, the, the two that stood out were the, the fourth and fifth. So the Karen, Kus, the Karen Kusama, I found yep. that one really interesting. And then the, the one after that, the Justin Benson and Aaron Moorhead one, those, those two for me kind of like tapped into for very different reasons, something that, that I was maybe kind of starting to feel, but there's, there's like a phrase that, is it Justin speaking or is it Aaron? It sounds well. It sounds like Aaron, actually. It sounds like Aaron, uh, but I think they do switch over. I, 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 I mean, the, you don't think of them as having similar voices. Um, <laughs> I don't think of, uh, of Moorheads as being slightly higher in pitch, and um, uh, and they've got quite different uh, intonations, but they are starting to merge into a single voice. I, I um, wasn't sure. I didn't think about that about that until later. But I think I think it was in uh, whichever segment it was. There was a phrase: the the membranes of reality oh, yeah. getting thinner. And and this sort of and and that kind of that little point sort of started to pull the whole thing together because I thought oh okay so so it sort of it sort of it, it kind of the thesis tightened up in in my mind at least then it's like right so that's that's what's going on here these these sort of membranes thinning is a great is a great way of putting it yes and uh, as I think uh, you, you mentioned in passing the. Uh, uh, if, if you get the DVD, which I, uh, I warmly recommend, you get this interview with, I think it actually is a real commentary, although most of the time they're not talking about what's on screen, mm -hmm. uh, with Kim Newman, who is the absolute perfect person to be uh, interviewing uh, uh, Philippe. And uh, it, uh, one of the things they say is that actually also uh, gives you uh, uh, this unexpected insight into some of these great filmmakers uh, own relationship with the film and what they're seeing sorry with the wizard of oz and what they're seeing when they watch uh lynch's takements and I, I i i completely agree about the benson mm -hmm. sequence i also think the david lowry uh, um, sequence the final one uh is uh particularly fascinating as a window into lowry's own uh filmmaking yes. he talks amongst other things about his use of the spielberg face quite self-consciously in pete's dragon especially as uh, uh, one of these kind of modern mechanisms of film affect right. that it has uh, that, that, that traces a line back uh, 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 to the Wizard of Oz, but it is uh, I feel, you know, even if you don't have the slightest interest in Lynch, it's a great film about the Wizard of Oz and, it, and its impact, and it's also a great film about uh, John Waters and Karen Kusama um, and Benson and Moorhead and David Lowry. Mm -hmm. No, no, it definitely because it kind of it also yeah it also kind of sheds light on on all sorts of things that that larry sequence so at one point i wasn't sure and then it was it was that spielberg reference that kind of i thought oh that is so interesting and he sort of was talking about giving a direction to the the actors like look at the sky and look you know look, look amazed and like amazed about what it doesn't matter we'll sort it out later or something like yes, this yeah, yeah, yeah. What, what am i looking at yeah what am uh, i looking at uh, uh, you know. uh, <laughs> 
yeah. Um, and of course, uh, you know, yeah, yeah, there are YouTube montages about uh, the, the, the Spielberg face is not news. Um, uh, it's it's one of the the I, I, arguably one of the greatest inventions in the grammar of science fiction cinema in the last fifty years, mm-hmm. um, and it's everywhere now. But um, uh, the, the, having a filmmaker who is making that kind of film talk about it is actually a yeah, really interesting. Exactly. Uh, uh, angle on yeah it's, it's and i and i wondered if because it's right at the very beginning i think it was it was definitely in the yeah right at the very beginning amy nicholson talks about how there's a direction that lynch would give and it's like you know more wind and the, yeah. and, and and for me that kind of that kind of insight into sort of what the directors are saying to the actors was was really interesting so i thought with the lowry one it was yeah it was it it, it was interesting to kind of come around and go okay i, I kind of wish i'd heard more about you know what people were what other people were doing there was a bit of it in the john waters and then the yeah. they all they all were doing different things which which worked i think but but as you as you uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, those of us who are benson and moorhead fans would like love to hear more about benson and yeah moorhead, that uh, was the their, one their segment they were the ones who weren't really talking about their own the, no not at all they, they were the ones with the most that i thought kind of like sort of well kind of well structured like, like that like the essay that was in that segment made a lot of sense i think it kind of went in and it sort of, for me at least, it kind of, it seemed like they were really concentrating on this particular, this particular line of argument. And, and to get Apocalypse Now in and to then yeah. have those, to have those sort of, you know, to have those archive clips, I thought was, was I'd never in a, I'd never in a thousand years have, have gone yeah. Wizard of Oz, Apocalypse Now. But yeah, they, they sold it. The, the, the arc of the, the film overall is to focus increasingly on the darker side of Oz um, and those right. those last two I mean the, the, the Benson Moorhead one is about uh, uh, it's called Judy and it's mm-hmm. it's loosely linked together by the uh, just explain this obviously for the uh, <laughs> for the listeners not for you because you've just watched it but the um, uh, it, it's about how knowing about Judy Garland and her subsequent career can't stop you viewing the film in a particular uh, kind of way and then larry kind of builds on that in his own uh way to uh focus on the deeper uh, uh darknesses in it i think in a slightly less kind of joined up way but in a way that uh uh makes a very powerful film to the end to the film as a uh, uh as a whole and it, uh, one of the things they discuss in the commentary is how how uh, Philippe worked with all the contributors to co-devise these segments. So he got them all uh, to... Um, he, he recorded interviews with them, all, first of all, about what they, um, uh, their, their take on The Wizard of Oz and Lynch and the relationship between the was. And then he uh, they, they back and forthed a script which he edited the images to and they then uh, recorded. And I don't know if anyone else has done that kind of um, way of um, uh, making documentaries. And it does show a kind of depth of experience in how filmmakers think and how you talk to uh, filmmakers and how you kind of capture the ideas. But it does... um, uh, when, when, when you watch it again, I, I watched it again this week, and you do notice that uh, actually sometimes the arguments are joined up through the clips that he's connected them with rather than anything in the actual script. And I think the Lowry one is, is one of those which is kind of all over the place, but is given coherence through the absolutely dazzling use of, uh, of montage. Yeah, yeah.
it's definitely worth yeah i do i i recommend it and i and i and i as soon as i finished watching it i also wanted to watch the documentary again because i i realized you know as, as you yeah. were sort of hinting at there there were these there, there were these connections and also i thought i mean how did they how did they choreograph this i mean did, did they was this all edited on afterwards or was there were people kind of you know going back and forth and choosing clips i mean there's a, the, the whole the whole kind of organizational side of getting these conversations and then not not having them be too repetitive and also as you say build towards this sort of darker this darker angle but also this 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 i, I forget who says it i think it might be Karen kusama um but i but th th this idea of of lynch being you know finding the hope inside and finding the sort of the yes. the kind of the better sides of people yes yes um uh and you know, it sends you back to Lynch thinking, okay, this is actually a major Lynchian theme that we've always kind of been aware of, but we haven't really had a, a if you like, a label to put on it or a sense of where it's coming from. Right. Well, that was great. That was really interesting. Um, thank you for that. Uh, so we're going to, we're going to wrap up. You're going to give a little bit of a hint or a preview of what's coming in your mutant popcorn for Interzone 295. Go for it. Yes, well, uh, it's going to be, it's, uh, of course, this is going to be one of those issues that captures the beginning of the uh, the blockbuster season. So mm -hmm. uh, although nobody's seen them yet, we're going to have the first Marvel film of the year, uh, Quantumania. Uh, we're going to have, uh, the, I, well, this will be the one that, capt that catches the delayed um, European release of Prison Boots. Um, uh, we're going to get Shyamalan's Knock at the Cabin, which uh, uh, looks looks so it's going to be interesting on a number of levels. We've got the Shazam the sequel. Uh, we've also uh, got uh, <laughs> uh, some stuff I've already seen. Uh, uh, I mean, on Wandering Earth Two is is. Uh, clearly, yeah, this is the film that, of course, has displaced Avatar from the top of the charts in China, uh, mm -hmm. has been, on the whole, uh, re received better than the uh, first film, or which, although I think I uh, still prefer the first one, um, but it's certainly a slicker uh, uh, production. Uh, we've got Megan, which has caught the, uh, the wave of... Uh, AI conversations in ways it could never have uh, um, uh, anticipated at the time it was being made. We've got Shin Ultraman, which is the um, the follow-up to Shin Godzilla, reviving a classic uh, property um, uh, for uh, a 21st century, uh, uh, basically home Japanese audience. Um, mm -hmm. uh, uh, we've got the absolutely astonishing looking uh, distant, which is uh, uh, is this the one? Is this the sci-fi uh, comedy? This is one? the asteroid. Um, uh, 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 well, I don't really know what it's going to be like, but this is <laughs> this is going to be the 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 the, the, uh, the, the, the plot summary is about um, an, uh, an asteroid miner who uh, has to. Uh, survive on uh, an alien planet uh, on which he's crashed, and the even more astonishing 65, mm. which is the Beck Woods uh, production. They, of course, um, uh, uh, with a quiet place breakout 
um, uh, filmmakers. Uh, this is the much-discussed trailer with um, uh, another uh, astronaut crashed on, this is the Adam Driver one, um, uh, crashed on a uh, mysterious planet, uh, uh, only to uh, find that there are nasty things uh, uh, waiting for him. Uh, so it's going to be it's going to be quite uh, a busy issue, and uh, there will probably be more stuff that has materialised by the time we hit press time. I'm looking forward to it. I'm particularly looking forward to your. You mentioned this sort of a the the kind of AI angle that you had to kind of cut from from the last one. So that's going to be that's going to be interesting for sure. Yes, I mean, to uh, explain the backstory to this, uh, 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 we were already starting to get a wave of AI films at the end of 2022, mm -hmm. um, which were kind of disguised as Pinocchio films. So after Yang, I think, which is a, a, a terrific film, um, uh, is kind of an AI Pinocchio film. And uh, Megan, I think, is is kind of taking this nascent genre in a, an inch, well, the first hour of it, um, is taking it in a rather new direction and then it becomes a kind of uh, stock Bloomhouse film in the second half. But uh, uh, anyway, uh, all this will be uh, coming through your letterbox or in your um, uh, your your your, your ebook um, in the spring. Yeah, very soon. Um, thank you very much for all of that. Uh, you can find uh, Interzone at interzone.press for, and that's where you can go for subscriptions extensions resubscriptions all those things are all there and uh scarlet ferret and also i should mention weightless books if you're in america or anywhere apart from europe and the uk i think i think that's where they have problems sending to so yeah weightless and scarlet ferret for ebooks and interzone.press for the print edition um thank you so much nick Lowe. thank you for coming on and i look forward to the next uh, the next chat well thanks so much it's been great